One semester of law school. One semester of criminal justice. Two experts. I'm Kristen Pitts. I'm Brandi Egan. Let's go to court. On this episode, I'll talk about the internet's first serial killer. And I'll be talking about the disappearance of Cora Okonski. Okay, this is... What? (laughs) I I just want to say right off the top here. I'm never doing another serial killer again. Oh. Serial killers are was your it a giant bummer. It was horrible. I know who your serial killer is. Of course I'm you do. You're for freak. you to do yeah, it. Yeah, of course you're excited. What? But I get to go first. I don't know why know. you're talk, complaining about your case already. We'll I, save that for the fucking end. I complained to my mom about it. <laughs> I complained to Norman about Speaking it. Speaking of our moms, yeah, we got our fifty. Yes, ratings. we did. Thank you, everybody. That yes, was thank so you so cool. much. Um, Mom, I'll be waiting for your phone call mm-hmm. on when you're going to oh, take me out for ice cream. This is how we find out whether our moms really listen to the episodes. <laughs> <laughs> if we don't hear from them, then I'll be like, oh, okay, thanks. Um, I'm concerned. I just moved my microphone for like 40 seconds while I was talking. You know how so. that sounded? <laughs> <laughs> It's okay, it's our first episode. We don't know what we're doing. Oh, wait, is this 29? This is our 29th episode. Brandy, come on, come on. Uh, No, it's okay. It's only recently that I've discovered that you can totally hear me drinking on the podcast. And I don't mean like drinking like alcohol, obviously. Yeah, you're 17 beverages. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that it was imperceptible. (laughs) This is incorrect. Totally. You can also hear Peanut in the background when she when her That's collar cute, jingles. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's cute. And you know, <laughs> the only reason that stays in there is because she's always in there with me when I'm editing. So oh, I just yeah. assume she just jingled her collar. Oh, no, no oh, fake news. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me either. So. so people can just think that Santa is in the background. <laughs> a lot of people don't know that Santa lives in Kansas City. A lot of people don't know that Kristen doesn't have a dog. <laughs> All right, are you ready? Are you ready for the business? Oh, God. Give me the business. Give me the business. <laughs> I realized how weird it sounded. Yeah. It was already like halfway out I'm my mouth. I'm not giving you any business. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to talk about the disappearance of Cora Okonski. Is this another story about a woman who went out for a run and then, oh, no. She wasn't running. <laughs> okay. But she, she did something that you'll never do. So okay, yeah. Was she like doing some accounting or like <laughs> no? But I'll get to what she okay, was doing okay. that you will never do. Okay. Um, I just want to start off by saying that I got uh most of my information from this for this from iowacoldcases.org. So amazing website, and I just realized just right this second that I did an Iowa case last week. Not intentional that I did another Iowa case. You know, I think you're just so obsessed with me <laughs> that when I was in Iowa, you were just like Googling Iowa facts. <laughs> uh, and I have now given away that this is a cold case. So. Oh, well, damn it. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Oh, was that intentional? Was it? No, it really wasn't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I really wanted to give credit because this yeah. website was amazing. Okay. okay. Cora Ann Okonski was a 23-year-old woman living with her two-year-old son and fiancé when she disappeared from her home in Tama, Iowa, 
on Sunday, April 16th, 2000. Tama is a small town in the central part of the state with a population of approximately 2,800 people. So, pretty big town. Pretty big city. (laughs) As Norman would say. (laughs) No, very small town. Um, And then, uh, worth noting, I guess, it it was Palm Sunday. So, that's the Sunday before Easter. Early Tuesday morning, Tate Otis Perk, Cora's 33-year-old fiancé. What do you think about that age gap? Ten years. Wait, you said she was 33, right? I said she was 23, and he is 33. Don't like it one bit? Suspect him already. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Just putting it out there right from the get-go. Just putting it out there. So Tuesday morning, Tate reports her missing to the Tama police. He said she'd gone to church on Sunday, which was unusual for her. She didn't go regularly. In fact, he'd never known her to go at all. But her family was Catholic. Mm -hmm. The church was only a block or so from their home. So she'd walked and she'd taken her son Austin with her. Okay. And I will say, I think a lot of people, when they have a young child, will start going back to church. And if you're going to go back to church, it's going to be Easter or Christmas. So, you know. Okay. Yeah. They'd returned shortly with palm leaves that Cora then hung on the wall, which is a common practice in Catholicism, but something that Tate was unfamiliar with. Mm -hmm. So much so that he didn't even know what the leaves were that he brought home. He just described them as long, skinny plant branches to authorities. This was the two-year-old? No. Oh. This is what the fiancé said. Well, is he... I'm sorry. He did not know what they were. I'm (laughs) sorry. I, he's on the wrong foot with me <laughs> by being 33 with the 23-year-old. So Cora and Tate were planning to get married in May. And when she'd gotten home from church that Sunday, they discussed upcoming wedding plans. So they were like about a month out from mm-hmm. the wedding. And Tate told Cora that he thought they should wait a while to get married. And then they'd argued. Mm-hmm. Cora got upset and said she was taking a walk to clear her mind. Tate told authorities that she'd been gone for several hours, but had returned in the evening around six or seven. But when she'd returned, she didn't say much of anything. She just took a shower and then went next door to the neighbor's house for a few minutes, came back carrying like a notebook. And then she'd asked him for money for cigarettes. He'd given her a few dollars and then she left the house on foot to walk to the gas station up the street to buy cigarettes. With a notebook and a couple She bucks. left the notebook at home. Okay. But she wa- yeah, took the money, took off on foot to go buy cigarettes. Gotcha. That was the last time you ever saw her. So, I don't think you're ever going to walk to the gas station to buy cigarettes, Kristen. <laughs> is what I'm saying. Okay, yeah. That so, w- you might be safe here. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine if all of a sudden at 32 I start smoking? That would be alarming. Norman would flip the table. He would lose his mind. When she hadn't returned that evening, he had just assumed that she was still upset and had gone to a friend's house. But he spent the next day trying to track her down, knocking on doors of several friends, and all gave the same response. Cora hadn't been there the night before, and none of them had seen her. And she didn't have a cell phone? This no, was 2000. 2000 okay, so yeah. yeah, okay. No, they were still pretty, I mean, not super common yet at right, that time. Right, right, okay. I mean, unless you're Zach Morris, you had one since, like, you know, 93. 
Yeah. <laughs> and it was huge. huge. The biggest cell phone ever. That night, Tate told authorities that he had to work a second shift at his job in Grinnell, which is about 30 minutes away. So he'd taken Cora's son, Austin, to stay with his family. And then he left a note on the door for Cora, letting her know where Austin was. Mm-hmm. When he returned early the next morning after his shift, the note was still there. Cora hadn't been back. After checking with the local jail to see if she'd been arrested, he reported her missing. So that takes us to Tuesday morning. As is often the case in these instances, the police were familiar with Cora and Tate. And not just because it was a small town. In December of 1999, just a few months earlier, Tate had been charged with a domestic assault against Cora. And a Mm -hmm. no contact order had been put in place at that time. Was that a mm mm-hmm? It sure (laughs) was. It sure was. A short time later, though, both Tate and Cora filed paperwork to get the no contact order lifted. Mm -hmm. They were working things out. They were working things out. I had a lisp all of a sudden. (laughs) (laughs) They were planning a May wedding. The assault case was officially dismissed in March of 2000. But three weeks later, Cora Ann Okonski allegedly walked out of her house to buy cigarettes and vanished without a trace. That domestic incident had not been the only reason authorities knew of Cora, though. Cora engaged in what authorities labeled as a high-risk lifestyle. She had a history of amphetamine use. And as such, she had several run-ins with police. She was considered a person of interest in cases that included narcotics, domestic violence, burglary. And at the time of her disappearance, there was an active warrant for her arrest on a charge of failure to appear at a pre-trial conference as a witness. Wow. Are you ready to be pissed? You're about to be pissed. I can just guarantee okay. it. Okay. You want to hold on to your chair or something? I'm just going to I'm just going to power through it. What do we got? Because of this outstanding warrant, Cora was not listed as an official missing person because per Iowa state law, a person cannot be listed as both wanted and missing what? at the same time. Yes. Why? That's... I knew you were going to be pissed. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. It's yeah. So she could not go onto the official missing persons registry because she was on the wanted list for having an active warrant for her arrest. That, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, that doesn't make any sense. Am I missing something? I yeah. Am I, I wanting think something? <laughs> I can't, it can't be both. It can't be both. It can't be missing no, and wanting no. at the same time. That's crazy yeah. bullshit. So the case of Cora Okonski's disappearance quickly went cold. No kidding. Mm-hmm. Cora's friends and family felt sure from the beginning that she would never abandon her son and that something must have happened to her. Yes, she'd had her struggles with drugs and the law, but she'd always stayed in contact with her parents, who lived in Chicago, and she'd always taken care of Austin, her son. Months passed without any word or sign of Cora, and then their fears seemed to be confirmed by the revelation that Cora had not cashed her Social Security disability checks since April of 2000. Mm. Yep. By 2003... Police and Cora's family alike believed that Cora was dead. 
three years have pa- had passed without any sign of her. What few leads they had in her disappearance had gone nowhere. By this time, her fiancé, Tate Perk, was in prison on unrelated charges for conspiracy to manufacture methamphetamine, possession of pseudoephedrine, and being a felon and a user of a controlled substance in possession of a firearm. Great. He was serving his sentence at the federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas. (laughs) With a scheduled release date of February 2017. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So he had a long... A long sentence. He denied having any knowledge of his fiance's whereabouts. And investigators said that he'd been cooperative. He'd answered all of their questions. What, the five they asked before (laughs) they were like, oh, she's also wanted, so we don't care? They really, I'm going to get into more of the investigation, but just because she wasn't on the missing list doesn't mean they didn't investigate her disappearance. Mm. It just meant that outside sources weren't also helping with it. And this is a cold case, you said? (laughs) (laughs) I'm in a shitty mood today. I'm sorry. Um, And... Investigators would not confirm whether they considered Tate a suspect in her disappearance. But of course he was a suspect. I was say, boyfriend, husband, He's the fiance, person that is always. the last person that saw her, the person that reported her missing. That's just being silly. Clearly he's a suspect. We all watch Dateline. That's right. <laughs> On September 18th, 2003, Tama Police published an appeal in a local newspaper asking the public for information regarding Cora's disappearance. Oh. They wanted to send the message that they were still looking for her. And community members rose to the occasion and tips began to surface. Armed with a search warrant, the Tama Police Department, Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation, and four other agencies began an extensive four-day search of a rural farm on Iowa Highway 21 near Irving, Iowa, in Tama County, as well as an Irving salvage yard. Hmm. So some tip that had come in had led them to this location. Okay. This rural property, this farm off of Iowa Highway 21, belonged to Nancy and Don Perk. Tate Perk's cousin and his wife. Whatever tip had come in made investigators believe that Cora might have been out at this property the night before she disappeared. Mm -hmm. The Perks gave the agencies their full cooperation, though, and in the search, they found some stuff. When bone fragments and clothing collected on the property was sent off to the crime lab for analysis, detectives thought maybe one of their leads had finally paid off. Right. But when the analysis came back, the bone fragments were animal, not human, and the clothing failed to yield anything of significance as well. The case again went cold. Dog sweater! (laughs) Thinking maybe the clothing wasn't human either. By the 10th anniversary of Cora's disappearance, all hope of ever finding her, even just her body, had faded. But one man, Tama Police Detective, that sounded kind of like pet detective. (laughs) Wait, are we talking about Ace Ventura? Ace Ventura pet detective took the case on. Big fan. Yes. And he's like, did someone say dog sweater? (laughs) 
lucky, but he'll find it. That's right. Tama police detective John Carr remained focused on the case. I want to solve this before I retire from the police force, Carr said to a local paper for an article about the anniversary. He called it a very active investigation still and said he was finishing up another round of interviews in the community based on new statements that had surfaced. Okay, I take back what I said about police. This guy is cool. For this article, he was asked how often he thought about the case, and Uh he said, every day. Yeah. So don't be a dick to him, Kristen. Okay, I take back my dickishness. (laughs) No, I really, like, that's cool. That's cool to be like, before I retire, I've got this one that's bugging me. But again, nothing really went anywhere. The case remained cold for another six years. Hmm. Then, finally, on December 9th, 2016, more than 16 years after Cora's disappearance, there was an announcement in the case. It turns out that in March of 2015, the Department of Public Safety and the Division of Criminal Investigation had assembled a task force of special agents with significant experience working cold cases to take another look at Cora's case. So this was the only open missing persons case in Tama, Iowa. Obviously, it's a small town. It's a tiny town. But they weren't just going to let it stay that way. Yeah. So they gather this task force working closely alongside the attorney general's office, the sheriff's office, the Tama police department, and the Tama County attorney's office determined that Cora Okonski's disappearance was not voluntary. Mm -hmm. Through interviews and additional discoveries, the case was then classified as a homicide investigation. Okay. How did they determine that it wasn't voluntary? At this point, they've not released that information. Don't they know how important I am and that I need to be in on this? (laughs) So agents then traveled extensively throughout the country conducting multiple interviews of key witnesses. So tips that had come forward, they're following up on them across the country. Have I mentioned that I take back my dickishness (laughs) about these police officers? I'm sorry. They then submitted their findings to the attorney general's office and the Tama County attorney's office. Upon review of that report, the attorney general's office and the county attorney's office convened a grand jury to review the evidence and testimony. And that grand jury returned an indictment for the charge of murder in the first degree for Tate Otis Perk. Nice. (laughs) Nice. Perk's trial was scheduled for February 21st, 2017. But after a change of venue motion was granted for the defense, it was moved to Marengo, Iowa, which was 45 minutes away, Mm -hmm. and was rescheduled for May 1st of 2017. But prosecuting a murder case without a body was almost unheard of in Iowa. Mm -hmm. Arguing the case without a body meant the prosecution would be missing several key pieces of evidence that typically establish guilt. There would be no medical examiner testimony about the cause of death. And jurors wouldn't see any gruesome crime scene photos because there were none. Mm-hmm. And there would be and there were no covered remains to generate important forensic evidence. Proving an intentional premeditated murder without those things would be a great challenge. But the prosecutors believed it could be done. 
an unofficial nationwide database of 469 murder prosecutions without a body between 1819 and 2016 lists just one other Iowa case. But in that case, they had an eyewitness to the killing and blood and tissue DNA matching the victim near a suspected dump site. Despite the roadblocks, a no-body case presents, though, 88% of the cases listed in that database ended in conviction. That's, I feel like that's pretty high. Yeah, and I'm kind of thinking, in order for a no-body case to make it to court, the circumstantial evidence... Has to be pretty big. Has to be amazing. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, 88%, that's really, really high. Yeah. And so, on Monday... May 1st, 2017, this trial with its unusual set of challenges began in Marengo, in a Marengo, Iowa courtroom. A jury of seven women and five men plus two alternates was seated and testimony began Tuesday afternoon. In his opening statement, Tama County attorney Brent Huron told jurors <laughs> that Tate put Cora in a chokehold and slammed her body to the floor, killing her. At the time, they were arguing over money and the upcoming wedding, which Perk wanted to postpone. Mm-hmm. Defense attorney Aaron Siebrecht, in his opening statement, told the jury that there was no evidence Tate killed Cora. In fact, there was no proof that she was even dead. Ricky, I am wondering, how did the prosecutor say he put her in a chokehold? How in did he say that? <laughs> Seems like he might have to have some evidence to be able to say that. All huh? right, sassy pants. <laughs> <laughs> Get Stay to tuned. It. <laughs> Can't take it. Uh, Ricky Joe Sanchez, one of Cora's friends, was one of the first to testify at trial. She testified that she was the neighbor that Cora had visited that day. Mm-hmm. Cora had come to borrow a notebook because Tate wouldn't talk to her, and she said she wanted to write him a letter. She told Sanchez that she and Tate had been arguing and that she feared for her life. She said Tate told her he was going to bust her head open, Sanchez told jurors. Ooh. She also testified that Cora told her to keep her windows open and asked her to call police if she heard screaming. Oh, shit. Sanchez took her dog for a walk so she could watch their house which she could see from her yard, but she never heard any screams or saw anything. Mm -hmm. Sanchez also testified that earlier in the day, she'd given Cora a ride to Perk's relative's home in Belle Plaine, Iowa, a rural farm property. Oh, my God. You might remember this from 10 minutes ago. (laughs) (laughs) What? When I said they'd searched a property. (laughs) What are we doing here? Start over. (laughs) Cora had said she needed to get out of the house to let Tate cool off. And after an argument, so Sanchez had dropped her off at Tate's relative's house Uh and then returned around seven to pick her up and take her home. When they'd returned home, Cora asked Sanchez to come inside with her because she was afraid of what kind of mood Tate might be in. Sanchez testified that she went in with her. But when Tate hadn't even spoken to Cora upon her return, she'd left and gone home. Oh, boy. The last time she saw Cora was when she came to borrow the notepad. Cora's parents, Jerry and Cecilia Okonski, both of Oaklawn, Illinois, testified about their daughter, who they said was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder as a child. 
The Okonskis talked to their daughter for the last time on April 16th, 2000. She was at Perk's relative's home, and that relative had computer problems. Jerry Okonski, a retired computer programmer, said he talked to her three or four times that day trying to help. Hmm. Cecilia Okonski said she was concerned after learning her daughter was missing because whenever she had trouble, she would call them for help, and she hadn't called them this time. The mother also pointed out that her daughter wouldn't intentionally leave her two-year-old son, Austin. She loved her son. Cecilia Okonski testified. So they admitted, like, their, yes, their daughter had problems. She had mental health issues. She had sure. drug problems. But she had been in trouble before, and she had always reached out to them. Yes. She always called them. The longest that they had ever gone without speaking was, like, a week. That says a lot. Yes. And even when it was calling to say, hey, you know, I've gotten myself in another mess. Yes. I need your help. Yes. She wasn't afraid to reach out to them. that's pretty big evidence that she's no longer alive. I completely agree. Yeah. Jerry Okonski testified that Tate had called him a few days after he initially told them their daughter had gone missing. He wanted them to come pick up Austin because he had to go to work and he couldn't keep him. When the Okinskis got to Tate's house, all of Austin's toys and clothes were outside in front of the house, and he brought Austin out to them instead of them mm, coming in the house. What? Mm-hmm. A little, little suspect. Yes. For sure. The grandparents took Austin home with them at that time, but their niece in Kansas City uh-huh. <laughs> said she wanted to care for the child. Austin who is now 20, was adopted by that niece. Wow. And grew up in the Kansas City area. Whoa. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. That's how I found this case. No, I'm just kidding. That's just a weird little tidbit. I met Austin at a bar. I met Austin at a bar. He told me his life story. Great guy. (laughs) On Friday, May 5th, the prosecution's star witness took the stand. The most damning testimony of the trial would come from Sean Ward, a fellow inmate of Tate's at Leavenworth. He testified that Tate had confided in him that during an argument on April 16th, he'd choke slammed Cora against the floor and broken her neck, resulting in her death. Ward testified that Tate put Cora's body in a closet for the night and then the following day, he put her body in, the body in the back of a pickup truck and drove her out to a state park or refuge area and buried her. He said Tate told him he'd buried the body so deep that he had to build himself steps to get out of the grave. Oh, my God. The defense called four witnesses who testified that they saw Cora after April 16th, which was deemed to be the most damning testimony for the prosecution. Right. But the prosecution had another eyewitness. Ear witness? I could be an ear witness. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so this other... I didn't write this down. But this other witness was a guy who had lived in a halfway house Uh with Tate at some point. And he said that he said the exact same story that the inmate had told that he had confided in him that he had killed a girlfriend once and he said the same thing that he buried her in a state park that he dug the grave really deep and that he'd periodically gone back to check on it to make sure it wasn't noticeable and he said as time went by the less and less noticeable it got to the point that he couldn't even find where it was anymore exactly 
you know, he still knew the general area or whatever. So these two guys testify at trial. Okay, so is this guy just the world's dumbest murderer who just can't shut up? So that was a question that they that was asked at trial of Sean Ward. Like, why would he have told you this? And he's like, you know, prison is a different, is an interesting interesting environment you're isolated you create relationships and everybody talks about what got them there or the things that they've done in their life Mm -hmm. you 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 confide with people on a different level than you would confide with people on the outside huh which makes sense to me yeah i mean i guess when i imagine prison has to be a pretty humbling experience yeah so why why pretend yeah okay okay so these two guys are telling this story that he's told them exactly what happened, you know, but then there's these four other people who are saying, and I, I couldn't find these four people's exact testimony. I just okay. heard it mentioned just like this. So I, I wish I knew more about that, but yeah. it was four people that testified that they saw her, interacted with her, identified her somehow after the date that the prosecution is saying that she was murdered, okay. which is April 16th. After a week of testimony, the jury began deliberations on Tuesday, May 9th at 3.30 p.m. They reached a unanimous verdict just before noon the following day. They found Tate Otis Perk. What do you think, Kristen? Well, if it's cold case, then they didn't find him guilty, but they should have found him guilty. They found him guilty of first-degree murder. Cold case doesn't have to be unsolved. Yes, it does. No, it was cold for 16 years. Well, it's not cold anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then then yeah, for sure. Yeah, they found him guilty of first-degree murder. And per Iowa state law, he would be sentenced in a formal sentencing hearing on July 10th. But the sentence was mandatory. Life in prison without the possibility of parole. Okay. His sentencing hearing. I do not like anything about what's going on with you right now. (laughs) Would be postponed, though. Why? Because on June... <laughs> that's a weird month. June... <laughs> I had a stroke in the middle of that word. <laughs> Glad to have you back. <laughs> it's only half my face movie. <laughs> on June 19th, 2017, Tate's defense team filed a motion for a new trial mm. based on lack of evidence, unfair prejudice, and possible jury misconduct. Oh, no. The motion stated that the defense maintained that there was no evidence that Cora was actually dead since no body had ever been found. It also argued that the jury may have unfairly judged Tate because of testimony regarding prior bad acts, such as domestic violence, burglary, and the use and sale of drugs. The motion also pointed out that two of the witnesses were jailhouse snitches who were testifying under the belief that they would somehow benefit from their testimony. That's not a reason for a new trial, though. Like That's, that's the point- reasons they have on their motion. Okay, but you point that out in court. You say, <laughs> well, well, remind me again where you live, sir. And they're like, uh, I'm at Leavenworth right now. And then you like drag their name through the mud and then right. the jury can... Uh-huh. Decide what they do okay. want to do. And I'm sorry, but domestic violence is relevant. Yeah. Ugh. Anyway, continue. But the, okay, go ahead. No, ask your question. Jury misconduct? Yeah, so 
I couldn't find exactly what they're referring to as far as jury misconduct, but it sounds like they're referring to like them getting information that didn't pertain to the case, like just that bad act stuff, oh. like the use and sale of drugs and stuff that it wasn't pertinent to this case. Hmm. It would take Judge Mitchell Turner nearly two months to rule on the defense's motion. Really? But on August 15th, 2017, he overturned Tate's no. conviction. No! Yes. He ruled that the verdict was contrary to the evidence or lack of evidence that was presented at trial. Judge Turner ordered a new trial for Perk, and he said in his ruling that he didn't find the jailhouse witnesses to be credible, to be credible as they were expecting some kind of leniency in return for their testimony. He also said that prosecutors exclusively relied on circumstantial evidence without a shred of forensic evidence, eyewitness testimony, or any other direct evidence that Tate killed her. He also said in his ruling... I would think that the neighbor's testimony would be pretty damn persuasive. I agree. I think think that the neighbor's testimony, the fact that she hasn't cashed a freaking Social Security check in 16 years. Yes. Her parents' testimony. So he said that... uh, Sorry, I just I have to. <laughs> sorry, I'm riled up and I've lost my place. Okay, so he said in his ruling that the prosecutors exclusively rely- relied on circumstantial evidence without a shred of forensic evidence, eyewitness testimony, or other direct evidence that Tate killed her. He also said in his ruling that he found the testimony of the four witnesses that identified Cora after April 16th to be credible, and that couldn't be the case for the prosecutors' version of events to be true. was possible for a judge to overturn a jury's verdict like this yeah to order a new trial yeah but so the prosecution chorus friends and families and jurors were all perplexed and confused by the judge's decision I'm dumbfounded to be honest with you Ben McCumber, a school principal who served as the jury foreman, said, Hmm. I'm frustrated. There's no words to describe how I feel, but I have no doubt over our verdict. Yeah. Another juror said Turner's ruling made him question the entire judicial system. Tate Perk's second trial was scheduled for November of 2017. In October, the prosecution filed a motion to remove Judge Turner from the case. Yeah. And after Tate requested a bench trial, Judge Turner recused himself from the second murder trial because that would have been a huge conflict of interest. Yeah, yeah. So he does recuse himself. And then on November 6th, his second trial was underway. This time there was no jury and Judge Ian Thornhill was presiding, but the testimony was exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Judge Thornhill told both sides that he would make his own ruling, that he had not read Judge Turner's ruling from the first trial. Good. And he told them that he would weigh the evidence carefully. On December 9th, 2017, more than 17 years after Cora's disappearance, Judge Thornhill found Tate Otis Perk... Not guilty. Guilty (gasps) of second-degree murder. Oh. 
He said there wasn't sufficient evidence for him to conclude that Tate had acted willfully, deliberately, premeditatedly, and with specific intent, which is required for first-degree murder. However, there was sufficient evidence, he said, to determine Perk was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt for second-degree murder. Perk showed no visible emotion when Thornhill gave his verdict or during his explanation of the verdict and points of law. After the verdict, Ben McCumber, the foreman from the first trial, said he was glad Judge Thornhill saw the same things the jury saw. Justice is served. I will forever be baffled by Judge Turner throwing out our verdict. At sentencing, Tate showed little emotion when Deb Calvert, Austin's adopted mother, gave a victim impact statement in which she said every part of his life has been affected by the loss of his mother. Austin, now 20, suffers from mental health issues, including extreme anxiety and low self-esteem. And she told the court that he continues to mourn the mother he barely knew on a daily basis. That's so sad. On February 1st, 2018, Tate Perk was sentenced to 50 years in prison. He will have to serve 70% of that, which is 35 years, before becoming eligible for parole. He will be 87 years old at that time. Cora's body has still never been found. Oh, I hate that. And that's the case of Cora Okonski. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that crazy? Yes. I blew my mind when I heard that the judge could overturn that guilty verdict like that. I mean, on the basis of something went wrong during the trial, but I don't think I don't, I don't think, think something, something went wrong. wrong. No, no, that's just it. Uh, yeah, I disagree. Yeah, I don't think something went wrong. I think that there it was all circumstantial evidence, uh-huh. but I think it was pretty damning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like that at all. Yeah, but I'm happy with the outcome. So this is now the second murder trial ever in the history of Iowa to get a conviction without a body. Wow. Yeah. (sighs) (laughs) Assuming that he really did do it. Yeah. I wish he'd just say where her body is. That way her family could have... Her parents are elderly now, and they're like, yeah, we would love to have a proper burial for our daughter. Yes. Yeah. Yes, she had her problems. Yes, she lived a high-risk lifestyle or whatever the police called it, Mm -hmm. and she made mistakes, but she was our daughter and she was a human being. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing I hate about that is when someone's life gets cut that short, she was Mm -hmm. 23. Who knows what she could have, she could have turned her life around. That's what I'm saying. It's like, I feel like a lot of 23-year-olds can be considered to have had a high-risk lifestyle. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. I think about all the Mike's Hard Lemonades I used to drink. <laughs> <laughs> so many Mike's Hard Lemonades. <laughs> and look at me now. That's right. <laughs> Woman of the year. <laughs> In my own head. Yeah, right. What? I don't think I was going to give a spoiler about your case. I'm not going to yeah, do Yeah, please it. don't. Don't. I'm not. Don't. <laughs> So, okay, and like I said, I'm never doing another serial killer again. I hate them. My first case that I researched for this week was a serial killer case, so I'm glad that I... Seriously? It oh, was. That would have been the darkest episode that ever. That sucked. 
and you know the other thing I realized that sucks about serial killers they do so much yeah, they it's do like, so well, much stuff. Don't you remember the BTK episodes was like thinking, four hours long? I was thinking that because I was like writing and writing yeah. and writing and writing. I was like, holy crap, when is this going to end? Yeah. And then I finally realized like, oh, when Brandy did BTK. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> these people, Yeah, they kill too many people. It's too many people. It's too long. Yeah. yeah. It's way too much. <laughs> Clearly, we're the victims here. Yeah. Just kidding. That was horrible to say. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> so this one is a local one. Excellent. It's horrible. Yep. Shout out to my mom for sending it to me. <laughs> so she sent me this Vanity Fair article, which is an amazing article. Uh-huh. And she goes, she added in, this might be too dark for the podcast. <laughs> and I said, I'll send it to Brandy then. But then I actually, yeah. like, I realized what it was. And yeah. I was like, oh, I've actually wanted to do this yeah. one for a while. So... First of all, shout out to the author David McClintock, who wrote this for Vanity Fair. It's called Serial Killer J.R. Robinson's Sinister Alter Ego. It's an amazing article. I'm going to say 85% of this script is just me retelling this amazing article in Vanity Fair. Just so we're totally clear. Yes. Also, hate to be nitpicky, but... Serial killer, J.R. Robinson's sinister alter ego. Do you have to call it sinister when we're talking about a serial killer? Anyway, my, my one complaint. Okay, here we go. So, and you're very familiar with this, I take it? Uh, I'm pretty familiar with it, yes. Okay. But I'm sure that there's lots that I don't know. I don't know. You're pretty obsessed with serial killers. <laughs> You'll probably jump in with your own facts. No. No. <laughs> So, John Edward Robinson came to Kansas City, Missouri in the mid-60s. He was 21 years old and had just married Nancy Jo Lynch. Once he got here, he immediately got a job with a prominent Kansas City doctor, Wallace Graham. And Wallace Graham had been the personal physician for President Harry Truman. Wow. Uh, But after a few years, Dr. Graham turned John into police. John had embezzled. $33,000 from him. Holy shit. Adjusted for inflation. (laughs) About $253,000. John went to trial. A jury found him guilty. You should have just done that case. (laughs) And we're done here. (laughs) Wouldn't that be so funny? (laughs) You know, a lot of people want to hear about the bigger trials. I'm going to focus on the small ones. So the jury found him guilty, but he didn't go to jail. He was just on probation for Mm -hmm. three years. So he's on probation, Uh and he gets a job as a manager of a TV rental company. Mm. That was a thing. That's weird. Uh Uh-huh. Pretty soon, they catch him stealing. TVs? I assume. (laughs) I feel like it'd be a lot easier to steal steal money money. (laughs) and then go take the stolen money and buy yourself a TV. So, they didn't press charges, though. They just fired him. (laughs) Quit being a freak. Quit (laughs) looking at me like that. I only did it because we talked about it on the last episode about me making weird eye contact while I opened my Diet Coke. (laughs) Are you going to make this a thing every time you... Every time. Hmm. I'm going to... Too gross! Oh, (laughs) I hope you driveled all over your I didn't. I almost choked. (laughs) 
this is how I get out of telling this horrible case. You just die right that's on the right. podcast. <laughs> You're like, I guess that's it. Well, <laughs> sorry, everybody. It's a real bummer. <laughs> so they didn't press charges. They just fired him. Then in 1969, he got a job as a systems analyst for the Mobile Oil Corporation. All right. Which was a pretty good job. Yeah, that sounds like a good job. Yeah. And his probation officer did him a real solid because he decided not to let Mobile Oil know that John was on probation. The officer said that John does not appear to be an individual who is basically inclined toward criminal activities and is motivated toward achieving middle class values. Spoiler alert. He's <laughs> fucking wrong. <laughs> Just a little, you know, sometimes you can kind of misjudge people. Another probation officer agreed. She was like, this guy is doing great on probation. Thumbs up all the way. He can really go far with mobile oil. And they were both right. He did great. And that's the story of how John Edward Robinson went from a life of crime to middle management at Mobile Oil. (laughs) Are we inspired yet? Listen, Brady, just because you steal from a couple companies doesn't mean you can't turn it around. Okay, no. Two weeks after that glowing review from the probation officer... John got caught stealing 6,200 stamps from his job. The fuck was he going to do with 6,000 stamps? I have no idea. Of all the lame things to steal. No, shit. This time, the company fired him. sell stamps on the black market? <laughs> he's got just a trench coat full of stamps. <laughs> he's naked under there, too. Ew. So it's like, he's both a flasher and he's selling stamps. <laughs> Kind of like how he's a con artist and a serial exactly. killer. Exactly. Lesson is, you don't have really to wear just one hat. <laughs> he's like that awful person at every job. He's like, I'm just so busy. Yeah. I'm just, I have so much going on. You couldn't understand. I just put out fires. <laughs> Can we put all the people who say they just go around putting fi- putting out fires into a room together and just leave them alone? Oh, God. I, I <laughs> Don't you feel like sometimes there's a one sentence someone can say and you go, oh, oh yeah. boy. Yeah. Ugh. I just spend my whole day putting out fires. <laughs> and firefighters don't actually say that. <laughs> I was going to say, what if they're a firefighter? Then, then they get the exception to the rule. Then they can leave the room. Okay. Things aren't going great for John and Nancy. They move to Chicago. But the thing is, Chicago has great stuff to steal, too. So he embezzled $5,500. What the fuck? Again, he was caught. Yeah. Fired. He's been caught. I mean, were there times that he wasn't getting caught? <laughs> you know, that's actually a good yeah. question. He, there had to be, or why would he keep doing it? Right? I mean, yeah, but it just seems like every job they have on record for yeah. him ended with him. Maybe he fired. stole a lot before he got yes. caught. Well, and that was one of the things they said about that doctor in Kansas mm-hmm. City, that the estimate is that he may have stolen actually three times the amount yeah, they caught. I completely believe it. So, again, he's caught, he's fired, but the charges were what dismissed. What Nancy? Is she just putting up with this bullshit? 
Nancy is interesting. Okay. And we will get to her. Excellent. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be making this story longer than you've already told us I was going to say, I, I hope you're ready to sit here for five years. <laughs> so the charges were dismissed. I'll say nothing for the rest of this <laughs> <Yeah>. podcast. <laughs> Just stare at me creepily. The charges were dismissed because John's dad stepped in and paid the bill. So they were like, easy peasy. We're done here. So now John and Nancy are back in Kansas City, and he's, like, immediately arrested for violating probation. They lock him up. But the probation officers had a lot of faith in John. They were like, we're just doing this to motivate him to stop all this horrible behavior. After a few weeks, they let him go. But they did extend his probation to another five years, all the way to 1976. Yeah, because the probation is so effective for him. Uh huh. They, I tell you what, people who encountered him seemed to just love him. Like they were so charmed by him, especially these probation officers. They just thought he was great. Great. <laughs> <laughs> this whole time they're like, we believe in this guy. <sighs> The kid's got a shot at really turning this thing around. But you're not going to believe this. John got caught stealing again. What? (laughs) This time it was from a neighbor. She gave him $30,000 to invest. She was a retired school teacher, by the way. So, like, it had to be her life savings. That had to be a lot of money. Yes. Um, Shock. He did not invest that money. Yeah. Yeah. But Missouri probation officers didn't know about the neighbor, and they ended his probation two years early. (laughs) That eye roll was over the top. (laughs) (laughs) So John's got his freedom back. Couldn't be more well-deserved. Oh, my gosh. And he decides to become an entrepreneur. He starts... Do you not know this? I don't know. Okay. He starts the Professional Service Association Incorporated. Such a great name. It really, I w- really tells you what it is. I'm so glad you say that because I have in my notes, that is the most bullshit name for a company I've ever heard of. Like if I wanted to come up with a fake sounding company, Professional Service Association yeah. would be it. Uh, but at any rate, he started this company, which he said was supposed to provide fi- financial consultations to Kansas City doctors. So here's the thing. John was charming. He dressed well. He was decent looking. Right. He was a really good conversationalist. So a bunch of doctors at KU Med hired him. Mm. But pretty quickly, they fired him. Yeah. Shocker. (laughs) Turns out he was mishandling their finances. Wow. Didn't see that coming. I do think it's smart if you're going to embezzle from people to start a financial consulting company because the people who hire you are obviously people who are struggling in that area. So yeah. maybe they'd be le- but but he Looks got caught to every catch time. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but he kept at it. Didn't bother John that they'd fired him. He kept working to recruit new investors, and he always portrayed Professional Service Association as a very fast growing company. And in letters to potential investors, John said that Marion Laboratories was trying to buy his company. So for people outside of Kansas City, 
Marion Laboratories was founded by Ewing Kaufman, who at the time owned the Kansas City Royals. Yeah. So when you say that to people in Kansas City, that yeah. Marion Laboratories wants to buy my company, that's a big deal. Yeah. But once again, John got caught doing bad stuff. A grand jury indicted him on four counts of fraud. He received a $2,500 fine and got three years probation. The fuck? <laughs> How many times can you get probation? You're going to find out that the answer is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so now we're in 1977. Okay. John is 33. At this point, <laughs> I wrote, John is 33. But at this point, he and Nancy have four children. I don't know how these things are at odds with one another, but that's what I have in my notes. Can you believe he has four children by 33? It seems impossible medically. (laughs) So at this point, they buy a home in Johnson County, Kansas. Yes. We've talked a little bit about what Johnson County is in relationship to like Kansas City, Missouri, KCK Mm -hmm. on this podcast. But I'm going to read to you directly from this Vanity Fair article describing Johnson County, Kansas, because I think this is hilarious. Oh, gosh. It was one of the richest counties in the United States, 480 square miles of sleek suburban affluence. Some of the towns had Shawnee names, such as Lenexa, for the wife of an Indian chief, and the county seat, Olathe, beautiful. The people of Johnson County felt a bit superior to their Missouri neighbors, and once you crossed into Kansas, there was a different feeling. The light seemed brighter, the landscape less dingy. The Kansans were richer, smarter, nicer, gentler. Better looking. (laughs) Fuck you! In case you couldn't tell where Brandy lives and where I live... I will say, I think the author actually lives here, so, yeah. you know. <laughs> but yeah, that I think that's a pretty fair assessment. Yeah. So, except for the richer, smarter, nice, well, richer for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe nicer, too. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You guys ended up with the serial killer, so. <laughs> oh, yeah. You never had any serial killers over here in Kansas City, Missouri. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> it's a future episode. <laughs> So now has John has moved on up. Yeah. And he's in the Pleasant Valley Farms neighborhood. And he's got a new job, too. He started a new company called Hydro Grow, hmm. which was a company that taught people how to grow vegetables indoors. Hmm. He had this little booklet, and he was supposedly this speaker who could go around and help you out. His neighbors thought he was awesome. He was so smart, and his kids were all so sweet, and he took really good care of his yard, which in Johnson County, Kansas, like... Man, that's important. That's maybe more important than being a good guy and a good father. (laughs) (laughs) So things are going great. In 1977, John was named Man of the Year. By who? Do you not know this part of the story? No! This is, like, my favorite part. Okay. So he was named Man of the Year. For all the great work he did helping handicapped people. <laughs> Turns out, in his free time, he was the head of a nonprofit that gave jobs to disabled people. Brandy, why do you look skeptical? <laughs> Sounds great, right? No! 
Well, the mayor thought so. Oh, God. The mayor signed John's Man of the Year Award, and there was this big ceremony for him. It was really nice. The Kansas City Star came out and covered it, did an article. But it turns out that all the letters that had poured into the mayor's office saying, hey, we should give John Robinson a Man of the Year Award were written by John Robinson. Uh-huh. Oh, gosh! <laughs> He had forged the signatures of all these different prominent people in Kansas City. Um, So the Man of the Year Award and the ceremony itself was all orchestrated by John Robinson for John Robinson. Wow. So the Kansas City Star followed up their first article. This guy's like the Kanye West of Johnson (laughs) County. Don't say that about Kanye. I mean, at this point. He okay, I was going to the, say, like, we're not gotten you know, to the, okay. the bad stuff <laughs> yet. <laughs> so, the Kansas City Star followed up their first article with a new one. This time, the headline read, Man of the Year ploy. Question mark? <laughs> Man of the Year? Don't think so. <laughs> no, it read, Man of the Year ploy backfires on honoree and honoree is in quotation marks all right that's pretty good so pretty soon the neighbors start to change their opinion on him a bit they're like me he's kind of a cocky jerk and we don't always love the way he talks to nancy or the kids and at one point around this time nancy's kind of like i kind of want a divorce she kind of wants a divorce she's considering a divorce okay but they go to marriage counseling and things work out So they stay together. Now it's 1980. John is still running HydroGrow, but he decides to get another full-time job at a local subsidiary of Borden, the food company. Mm -hmm. You're not going to believe this. Does he get caught stealing from them? (laughs) Yes. Cheese slices this time? (laughs) Just a bunch of cottage cheese. (laughs) Who am I to judge? So he stole more than $40,000. Yeah which he spent on an apartment in Olathe, Kansas, which he basically used as a sex spot. Sex pad! (laughs) We've all got one! Ah, Now you pretend you don't have a sex pad, And it's located in Olathe. (laughs) Everyone's sex pad is located in Olathe, Kansas. (laughs) So he had this sex pad that was basically for him and these two other women who also worked at Borden. Hmm. Were they having threesomes? Uh, the article didn't get into that. I don't know if they knew about one another. I, uh, Frankly, I'm grossed out. <laughs> now you don't need to know the details. I was like, that's enough. Uh, this article gets into crazy detail about some other stuff that I did not need. <laughs> guy, This guy was... Anyway. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this time, John had really crossed the line. Missouri was like, okay, we see that you have a serious criminal record. We see what you did here. The maximum sentence for this crime is seven years, so we're putting you away for seven years. Wow. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) He gets probation again? No. Okay, so the maximum sentence was seven years, but they gave him two months of jail time and five years of probation. Brandy, he was just a good guy who'd learned his lesson. He has to be the most charming asshole on the planet. I know. I know. So this goes on and on. So I'm going to speed this up a bit. 
You're just going to start talking faster. <laughs> you, what you should do is you should speed it up in the recording. <laughs> like when you're doing it in editing. <laughs> but it just sounds like you, you know. Chipmunk? Smoked a little meth real fast. <laughs> so let me get this straight. I'm never going to walk to the store for cigarettes, but I'm going to smoke <laughs> meth for the podcast. <laughs> Bit of a jump. I didn't do any of the gateway drugs you're supposed to do before sure meth. Well, I have a cocktail occasionally in the evenings, and then I just tried meth one day. <laughs> so he creates another side business, but this one was also bullshit. Which one's this? Um, this is the part I'm speeding up, so I'm not going to get into all the details Excellent. of all. Wonderful, you know. great, another business. Yeah, another bullshit. business, another bullshit. The district attorney's office got involved, and his lawyer is like, "Look, dude." You need to get some affidavits saying that your voice... I'm sorry. The meth is having quite the effect. Okay. His lawyer is like, look, dude, you need to... What? I thought about the meth again. Does it seem out of place? After in the Mona Lisa episode, well, the other serial killer yeah. episode, the BTK one, the yeah. hardest drug I could come up with is was ibuprofen. <laughs> now you've gone straight to the meth. <laughs> so his lawyer is like, "Look, you need to get affidavits saying that your invoices are legit." And John's like, "Okay, no problem. I'll just those. cook those up real fast." That's exactly <laughs> what he did. He was like, "Fine, I can make that up." <laughs> yeah. Then he starts another business called. Equi two. <laughs> what? <laughs> Not a good business, business name. Names. Um. Yeah. So another really terrible fake business name. Uh, let's see. Until this point, most people. Sorry. <laughs> I'm. I'm looking at a paragraph that I wrote that makes no sense. <laughs> This could be the meth talking, but it really makes no sense to me now. <laughs> so, until this point, most people believed that he'd stolen a bunch and committed a ton of fraud. He yeah. was a con man running these fake little companies, hosting awards luncheons for himself. But when he started Equa 2, he changed things up. Mm-hmm. He decided that he needed to hire someone to help him. With all that important work he was doing. Yep. So in 1984, he hired Paula Godfrey. Paula had just graduated high school. I think she went to Olathe North. She was a great student. She was an amazing figure skater. And John charmed her. He's like, look, I've got a great opportunity for you. I'm going to put you in a training course in Texas, and I'll pay for everything. And of course, Paula. God, what a great opportunity. Oh my God. Yeah. She's like, this sounds amazing. So on the day that she was scheduled to go to Texas, John offered her a ride to the airport. Then, nothing. Mm-hmm. Her parents didn't hear from her for several days. They were pretty worried, so they contacted the police. They were like, our daughter is missing. They told the police about John and how he was the last person they'd seen with her. So the police went to John, and he was like, what? I have no idea where she is. That was all he had? A little while later, 
police got a letter from Paula. Oh, for fuck's sake. Signed, not John Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is like, I feel like the con man stuff, it's kind of like, oh, okay, oh, geez. And now it's just, it's going to get yeah. really bad. Sorry, uh. folks, here we go. Um, so the letter said that she was okay and just not interested in seeing her family again. Yeah, yes, you know, like, Children often send Mm -hmm. to their parents. And the police were like, yeah, this seems legit. What the fuck? So they suspended their investigation. Mm. Yeah, this this makes me so angry. They They got this letter and they were like, oh, okay. Never mind. She's fine. Then a few months later, John had a great idea. For a nonprofit, he started Kansas City Outreach, which I think is actually a really good name mm-hmm. for a nonprofit. And I looked it up; it is a name for a nonprofit mm-hmm. in Kansas City, which is kind of too bad. Yeah. But anyway, this was an organization uh, that would provide housing as well as job training and daycare services to unwed mothers and their babies. Sounds amazing. Sure does. If it wasn't total bullshit, yeah. He took this idea to Truman Medical Center and this other organization called Birthright, which apparently really did help unwed mm-hmm. pregnant women. So he told these two legit organizations, hey, why don't you send me some good candidates who you think would like to be part of my very real program? Mm-hmm. By the way, the funding for this is coming from some major international corporations. I think he said Xerox was mm-hmm. invested in this. Hey, why not? Shoot for the stars, right? (laughs) This is like the mid-80s, like Xerox was huge. Yeah. So like a month later, Truman Medical Center reached out to John. They're like, hey, we've got a candidate for you. Mm -hmm. Her name is Lisa Stassi. Mm -hmm. She's 19, and she just gave birth to a baby girl named Tiffany. I know, Mm -hmm. I know, this is so bad. John's like, great. I'll give her an apartment on Troost. I'll help her get her GED. I'll get her some job training. Pretty soon, they got her on the phone with him, and he's like, hey, my name is John Osborne, and I'm going to help you out. He ended up taking Lisa and baby Tiffany to the Roadway Inn in Overland Park. Mm -hmm. A few days later, John goes to Lisa. He says, good news, I've got an opportunity for you in Chicago. You can take Tiffany with you, of course, I just need a few things from you. First, sign these four pieces of blank stationery. The fuck? Mm-hmm. Also, give me the addresses of all your relatives. Don't worry. I'll let your relatives know where you are. Because you're going to be so busy in Chicago, you won't have time to contact them. But before she left Chicago, Lisa talked about the opportunity with her relatives. And for the most part, they were like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. Probably the most vocal person was Lisa's sister-in-law, Kathy Klingensmith. Kathy was like, hold on, how well do you know this guy? Yeah, exactly. And who is he? But Lisa was like, he's great, he's generous, this is legit, I'm doing this. So John picked her up, and Lisa... It's too legit. To quit. Too legit to quit. <laughs> Have you no self-control? 
So John picks her up, and Lisa and Tiffany left. But the next day, Kathy still felt really weird about the whole thing. So she called the roadway in, where she knew they'd been staying. And the clerk was like, yeah, she's gone. Her bill is paid. And Kathy's like, okay, who paid it? The clerk said, John Robinson. So not John Osborne, Osborne. which was the name she'd been given. Yeah. And also, he'd paid with a corporate credit card under the name Equi2. Mm-hmm. Not Kansas City mm-hmm. Outreach or anything like that. At this point, Kathy's like, oh, no. She immediately knew something horrible yeah. had happened. Meanwhile, across town, John's brother and sister-in-law, Don and Helen Robinson, had just flown into Kansas City from their home in Chicago. John had amazing news for them. He's like, I know how badly you two have been wanting a baby. You've been trying for forever to adopt one. Well, I've got great connections. So he drives them over to the Equi2 offices. Got your fresh baby. Uh-huh. He had them sign what looked like real adoption papers. They paid him $5,500 in fees. And then he took them home where his wife Nancy was waiting for them with a beautiful baby girl. Mm-hmm. John's like, hey, her mom just committed suicide, so this baby is yours. They were overjoyed. Yeah. They were so excited. Yeah. They took Tiffany back to Chicago and named her Heather. Mm-hmm. Those are the most 80s names. <laughs> like, Tiffany wasn't 80s enough. They had to go to Heather. <laughs> They're like, Tiffany has been done. Let's do Heather. (laughs) You're right. Those are like number one (laughs) and two. (laughs) But all the while, Kathy was like, Kathy was still like, there's something very wrong here. Her husband, David, agreed. So he went to the Equitu office and confronted John. He's like, where the hell are Lisa and Tiffany? And John's like, get out of here. So Kathy went to the police and reported Lisa and Tiffany missing. But Kathy wasn't the only one who was suspicious of John Robinson. May I just pause and say how infuriating it is when you see how early the suspicions yeah. were on him and then you think about how long it took him to get No caught. shit. Okay. So I mentioned earlier that he approached Truman Medical <clears throat> Center <clears throat> and an organization called Birthright. Mm-hmm. And Truman evidently didn't see anything wrong with him, uh, but Ann Smith, the woman he talked to at Birthright, did. He told her that Kansas City Outreach was affiliated with his church, and that a bunch of the people at his bank, where he was on the board of directors, were huge supporters of Kansas City Outreach. So Ann's like, okay, but I'm going to verify all this yeah. before I send women to you. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So she calls up the church, and they're like, well, yeah, he's a member, but we've never heard of that program. She calls up the bank, and they're like, who? Oh, my god! We've never heard of that guy. At this point, Anne is very suspicious. Yeah. And she doesn't have Google, because it's 1984. <laughs> So she has to be Google. So eventually, all of her searches take her to the Missouri Board of Probation and Parole, where she talks to this guy named Stephen Hames. 
And Stephen's like, hang on, let me pull his file. Oh, this dude has quite a record. Let me see if he's done anything in Kansas. Because that's the thing. It's like, yeah. for people who don't know, like we're right here on the state line, so people can kind of be sketch balls and just yeah. switch states. Switch states, exactly. So he calls over to Kansas, and the Kansas dude is like, yep, he has a crazy record here, too, but we've never had like real problems right. with him. But Stephen is like, nonetheless, I'm going to ask this guy to come into my office. So he sends John a letter. And the letter is like, hey, January 17th, 1985, my office. Be there, be square. (laughs) John doesn't show. Uh Uh-huh. So this time, Stephen sends a registered letter, which I assume is the same as like a certified letter, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's like, okay, January 24th. I mean it this time. John shows up. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just want to include this. Uh, Steven recalled that he looked like the Pillsbury Doughboy. (laughs) (laughs) What? I'm only including it because it seemed like everyone else was so charmed. But he was like, yeah, it looked like the Doughboy to me. Oh, my gosh. He only said that because he showed up completely naked with just a handkerchief (laughs) around his neck. (laughs) So John was super friendly and explained that this was all just a misunderstanding. Boy, that birthright lady really got things mixed up. What an overreaction. (laughs) Yeah, that was his take. He was like, and as proof of how wrong she was, John was like, look, I'm already working with Truman Medical Center. They've placed a few young women with me and I've got them in apartments on Troost Avenue. You're welcome to come check on them. Mm -hmm. So Stephen did. And sure enough, the women in the Troost apartments were fine. But then he heard that another woman named Lisa Stacy, who'd been referred to John, was missing. And Truman Medical Center was starting to be a little like, oops, mm-hmm. should we have vetted this guy yeah, just maybe. a smidge? So Stephen calls over to the Overland Park Police Department and was like, hey, are you guys as concerned about this Lisa Stacy thing as I am? And they're like... Not really. <laughs> <laughs> no, so they were like, uh, we didn't find any evidence of wrongdoing, so we're not really looking into yeah. it. And oh, by the way, uh, totally weird thing, unrelated, I'm sure, but another woman who used to work with him, Paula Godfrey, we can't find her anywhere. Oh, but don't worry, because she sent us that letter. Yeah, she said, you know, she's uh, cool. So Stop it's all good. For me. Yeah. Yeah. I would really love to know more about how that conversation actually went because that just sounds mind-boggling. Yeah. No, we're not worried about Lisa. Oh, look, look right here in our file. We've got another missing woman who's oh linked to him just gosh. a few months earlier. I mean, that just... I... <sighs> but, and thank God for this, Stephen was not a fucking idiot. So he's like, no, I've talked to Lisa's family and this seems wrong. She told them that he had her sign a bunch of blank stationery before she left, which I'm sorry, is just weird. That's not normal. And when they got these letters that were supposedly from her, they didn't sound like her at all. And oh, by the way, these letters were typed, and she didn't know how to type. Mm -hmm. So this is weird. So Stevens... I will say that anybody can hunt and peck. (laughs) This is true. On a keyboard. (laughs) This is true. (laughs) 
<laughs> but when you think about what's she more comfortable doing? Yeah. Yeah. She would have written, handwritten it. Yeah. For sure. So Stephen straight up asks John Robinson, where is Lisa? And John's like, oh, Lisa, oh, she ran off to Colorado with some guy named Bill. And at this point, Stephen's like, mm, nope, hard no. Yeah. This guy sucks. I'm calling the FBI. He talks to the FBI. What? Are you fucking serious? Yes. This is shocking, right? The FBI was involved this early? Yes. Holy. It is mind-blowing. Shitballs. Mm-hmm. Should we reveal right now how long it took for him to get arrested? No. no people just have to wait five years and figure it that out? That is okay. correct. Okay. <laughs> Six months later, he was arrested. <laughs> okay. So he's like, I'm calling in the FBI. He talks to the FBI and he's like, look, there are two women, and one baby missing. He's done this in Kansas and Missouri, so it is federal. We know he's a con man. I think he's escalated. I need your help. The FBI is like, okay. He gets two agents, Agent Thomas Lavin and Agent Jeffrey Dancer. Join. Ooh. <laughs> Hold me closer, Jeffrey Dancer. <laughs> That is a magical name. But don't you think those FBI ga- guys gave him so much oh, shit? Oh, I'm sure. Ugh, dancer. <laughs> Send you over to Agent Dancer. <laughs> so they join Stephen in the investigation, and they're looking into John, and of course they discover that he's shady as hell and has been for a very long time. But they also discovered that the Pillsbury Doughboy was into kinky sex. Yeah. You say that like, aren't we all? (laughs) No, No, so this is when they figured out that he was really into BDSM. Mm -hmm. Like, heavily. Like, not just mild. Not your entry level. (laughs) Um, So that's when they, these three investigators figured out that John had basically created a sex work business. The article doesn't use the word pimp, but, I mean, if this isn't a pimp, I don't know what is. So here's what he did. He created this business where people could come and pay prostitutes for S&M sex. And he'd hired a male stripper nicknamed M&M to recruit Mm. women. Excellent. Yes. M&M liked the candy, by the way, (laughs) in case you're wondering. Not like the rapper? No, this was before the rapper. (laughs) So the agents are like, well, this is gross. But they, I think they were kind of hoping that they would find Lisa or Paula like somehow wrapped up in this. They figured they'd find Literally them. wrapped up in the closet? Ew. No. <laughs> Sorry, that's what you meant? No. I think they hoped that they would find out that they'd like been involved in prostitution. They were still alive and well. Oh, God. Sorry. So anyway, uh, they weren't part of it. (laughs) They were still nowhere. So Stephen is very frustrated. He calls John back into his office for another meeting. And this time, John is like, what? I'm just trying to help people. Why are you on my case? (laughs) And he's like, oh, oh, by the way, you can stop worrying. Lisa is fine. The baby is fine. I just heard from a woman who recently babysat Tiffany. Please, let's never speak of this again. So, of course, they question the babysitter. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, yeah, I just saw Lisa, and I just babysat Tiffany. Mm -hmm." But they're like, 
Uh, Was this this John doing a woman's voice? (laughs) It was John in a woman's dress and hat. It was like Bugs Bunny where like he only had a costume change, maybe some lipstick. No, so they're like, we're going to stay a while and we're going to ask you a ton of questions. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon the lady's like, okay, I don't know who Lisa is. I don't know Tiffany. John asked me to lie to you guys because I owe him money. Yeah. By this point, Stephen and the FBI guys are like, oh my God, we know this guy did something, but we don't have anything on him. Mm Mm-hmm. So they start testing out just all kinds of shit, anything they can do. Uh, At one point, a female FBI agent went undercover, and she met with John, and she was pretending that she wanted to be one of his S&M sex workers. And of course, um, John met her for lunch in Overland Park. Maybe at Cheddar's. We don't know. (laughs) And he was like, yeah, you can make a couple thousand bucks in a weekend. You'll get the shit pinched out of your nipples, but it'll be fine. (laughs) No, what he did tell her was like, she had to be prepared for like nipple clamps or maybe it was pliers. He said, I don't know. It didn't sound pleasant. (laughs) Not your thing. (laughs) Clearly, clearly not into it. Um, So, of course, she was wearing a wire the whole time. (laughs) I was fine with the clamps. <laughs> the pliers is where I draw the line. Well, clamps, like nipple clamps, that seems like they have this purpose. And, like, you know, there's a limit to how hard they're going to clamp you, right? But a plier, that's a tool. <laughs> we don't need to get professional-grade tools in here. <laughs> If it can take a nail out of a wall, it doesn't need to be on my body. You know, you're really hitting a nerve for me right now, because as I was writing this last night, I was like, I don't want to be judgmental of people who are into it, but it's just not my thing. And I feel like me thinking I'm not being judgmental is actually very judgmental. Just know that I'm trying. So this FBI agent, she's wearing a wire the whole time. But the FBI was so freaked out by John Robinson that they were eventually like, yeah, we need to pull the plug on this. We can't have you go too undercover yeah. with this guy. He's going to kill you. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Sorry. Is it the nipple pliers? a weekend for it so how about like are you using your nipples (laughs) if not how much are they worth (laughs) (laughs) so they pulled the plug on the undercover stuff Um, so they still had some other angles to try John was already under under investigation for forging government checks (laughs) oh no We are never going to finish this episode. <laughs> oh, God. oh, no. 
Ladies and gentlemen, she's she's reaching for the Diet Coke. A known anti-laughing <laughs> liquid. This will solve the problem. I got it under control. <laughs> Sounds like it. You know, I was worried this would be too dark. <laughs> Apparently not. Oh my gosh. Okay, so John was already under investigation for forging government checks. And he'd done that with this guy named Irv Blattner. Mm-hmm. That so, sounds like a fake name. <laughs> it sure does. <laughs> Although, if you were going to do a fake name, wouldn't you choose something further away from Blatter? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Okay. So, Irv worked with the police to help with their case against John. And in the meantime, the police were like, uh, hey, Truman Medical Center, get those two women the hell out of that apartment on Yes! Cruise. Give John, you know, a reasonable, not suspicious excuse and get them the hell away from that guy. Months pass by. They're still watching John, but they don't have enough on him. Yeah. That's when John met Teresa Williams. Teresa was 21 years old, cute. John offered her a job as a sex worker and his mistress. He's like, I'll pay for your apartment as well as your expenses, and I'll give you drugs. Mm-hmm. She's like, sold. So on April 30th, 1985, John gave her $2,500, mm-hmm. a nice dress, and told her that a limo would pick her up that evening. Sure enough, the limo comes. The driver blindfolds her and takes her to a mansion somewhere in Kansas City. I would love to know oh where. Oh my gosh, I want to know so bad. Yeah. When she took off the blindfold, she saw a sophisticated older man who wanted to be called Judge. He led her down to a dungeon-style basement where he stretched her out naked on a medieval rack. Medieval? Medieval. She started screaming and panicking. She's like, let me go, let me go, let me go. And finally, he did let her go. She got back into the limo, was blindfolded again, and was sent back to the truce department. By the way, Troost is a road in Kansas City. I just yes, realized that yeah. I've been saying that a lot, and um, yeah. this podcast goes beyond. It's it's kind of a controversial road, actually. It's kind of just it's like our super racist dividing line. Very in Kansas super, City. very super racist dividing line. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, our great city. Yeah. So a few days later, John shows up and he's pissed. He's like, "Give me that money back!" You know, he's mad, mad, mad. So the FBI, by this point, is aware of Teresa, of course. And on June 7th, they show up at her door. And at first she's like, what? Oh, I'm just an employee of Equitu. I don't know what you guys are worried about. And they're like, okay, hold on. How much do you trust this John Robinson guy? Because we think he's murdered two women. Mm-hmm. And that's when Teresa kind of freaked out. Yeah. She unloads that whole story. Mm-hmm. She's like, he pulled a gun on me. Um, but then later we made up and he said he'd take me to the Virgin Islands. And he's been making me write these fake diary entries where I say that his friend, Irv Blattner, has been threatening to kill me. What the fuck? Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, he had me sign a bunch of blank stationery. Yeah. So, oh my gosh. so 
police obviously suspected, okay, John Robinson must have known that Irv Blattner had kind of turned on yeah. him and he was obviously framing this guy. Yeah. So He's they're all sitting there. to kill her yeah. and frame Irv Blattner for it. Sure. Yeah. So they're all sitting and there. And then it will also look like Irv Blattner killed the other missing women. Oh. <gasps> <gasps> <laughs> <laughs> um... Irv Blattner, I wonder if he's still around. I don't know. Okay, anyway. Another time. <laughs> so they're all sitting there at this apartment having this conversation when all of a sudden they hear a key in the door. John walks in. Mm-hmm. The FBI agents are like, fuck. Yeah. We did not expect this. Like I said, Teresa had this fake diary, but the original fake diary was written by John. She was just supposed uh-huh. to transcribe the whole thing. So she'd been copying it down. So, which, I'm sorry, what did she think that was for? I have no idea. Like, right? Yeah. Okay. So. Which that was a weird fetish thing. That is, No. No, nipple <laughs> nipple play is a weird fetish. <laughs> diary copying is I not mean, a fetish. I don't know. I'm an expert, and I can tell you, it is not. (laughs) So one of the agents holds up the original diary and is like, is this your handwriting, John? And John's like, yeah. Oh, look at the time. Better go. Goodbye. Oh, my gosh. So he left. In that moment, the agents had to let him go. Yeah. But they did tell Teresa, hey. Get the fuck out of here. We've got to get you out of this apartment. And do not have contact with John. My God, he is definitely going to kill you. Yes. They immediately got to work. They brought Stephen back in. And they're like, let's interrogate the shit out of John. And then they're like, let's go to court. Yeah. And let the court know that this guy who is on probation has been accused of carrying a gun, supplying drugs to someone, and lying to his probation officer. Yeah. Steven's like, look, this dude needs to be in jail, not on probation. Probation should be done for this guy. No more probation. And a judge was like, you know what? You're right. And then John got out on bail. Oh, my gosh. Meanwhile, the FBI was keeping Teresa safe. They hid her, and eventually they were like, here's a one-way ticket far the hell away from Kansas Mm -hmm. City. Enjoy. Yeah. Goodbye. In the meantime, John appealed the judge's decision against him. He said his constitutional rights had been violated because he hadn't been able to confront his accuser, Teresa Williams. And the appellate court agreed with him. Holy shit! So, John was free. I know. Is this fucking real? Unfortunately. Oh my gosh. I know. This is nuts. I I feel so conflicted because on the one hand, yes, you should be able to confront your accuser. But at the same time, good grief, can there be an exception in a case like this? Uh, So Stephen and the two FBI agents were pissed. Yeah. And by the way, John still had a really good reputation. A few days after he was set free, he was on the cover of Farm Journal, Journal Magazine. Because he was apparently an expert on agricultural finance. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Now he's stealing farmer's money? <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, but around that time, the district attorney in Johnson County, Kansas, came forward with a case against John. 
Who was the district attorney at that time? Do you know? No. Oh, I was just curious. I, I left out a few details. No, that's fine. There's plenty in here. So, <laughs> so uh, it didn't have anything to do with missing women. Uh huh. It was another fraud charge. Yeah. Because again, he wore many hats. Yes. All day long, he put out fires. <laughs> just so busy. Just so, so busy. So. I think we've heard enough about his fraud. So I'm not going to go into the fraud That's case. Yeah. Long story short, he was sentenced to six to 19 years. Wow. And of course, he appealed everything. Yeah. Eventually went to prison in 1987. Shortly before he went to prison, though, 27-year-old Catherine Clampett went missing. She came to Kansas after seeing an ad in the newspaper, which, of course, John had placed there, mm-hmm. advertising, quote, a great job a lot of traveling, and a new wardrobe. Mm-hmm. After she'd been gone a few weeks, her brother called the police. But the police said they didn't have sufficient evidence leaking, linking her, her to John. Her Jethro? <gasps> Next thing you know, old Jed's <laughs> in here. Ken folks said, Jed, move with me. <laughs> Did you expect me to know so many of the words? I could keep going. <laughs> Uh, so John went to prison, and he did really well in prison. Mm-hmm. Prison staff quickly discovered that John was super smart. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is so weird. So they gave him a job in computer programming, and thanks to his expertise and good work, he actually saved the Kansas prison system about $100,000 a year. Wow. They loved him there. Oh, my gosh. They thought he was a model prisoner, completely nonviolent, so of course he got out early. Of course he did. He'd served less than four years. Holy shit. But he was still eligible to serve time in Missouri, so he went to Missouri. The people in Missouri loved him, too. Both sides of the state line, big fans of this guy. Especially the prison doctor and his wife, Beverly Bonner, the prison librarian. In fact, Beverly liked John so much that she gave him a job in the prison library. He got out in 1993, and, you know, by that point, John and Nancy couldn't exactly afford to live in Johnson County anymore, mm-hmm. so they moved to a trailer park in Belton, Missouri. Oh! <laughs> Not far from my parents. <laughs> so, you know, John still had his hydro-grow business, yeah. and that prison librarian, Beverly Bonner, mm-hmm. well, after John got out, got out of prison... She divorced her husband. Yeah. Moved to Kansas City, took a job as president of Hydrogrow. Uh-huh. And started banging John, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, the Vanity Fair article didn't say that, but every other article I read <laughs> after that did. So I was like, I don't know why he kept that yeah. up. But anyway. I guess he couldn't include it in everything. Every, I mean, this yeah. Vanity Fair article, it is detailed. Hefty. Yeah. It's it's a hefty one. Pretty soon. Beverly's mom started getting letters from her. Things at Hydrogrow were going great. And the job was going to mean a lot of international traveling. Of course it was. Like, yeah, I'll be all over the place. In the meantime, could you send all my alimony checks to a P.O. box in Olathe, Kansas? Mm-hmm. So her mom did. Oh, my gosh. At around this time, John started communicating with Sheila Faith, a Colorado widow whose teenage daughter, Debbie, was in a wheelchair. I 
think Debbie was like 15. Mm-hmm. Not sure. Sheila was in love with John. She mm-hmm. was totally charmed by him. Um, and he said all the right things. Of course. He's super charming. Mm-hmm. He was like, you'll never have to work again. I want to take you and Debbie on a cruise. I will take care of your daughter. You know, we'll put her yeah. in a really great school. Yeah. So Sheila and Debbie planned to go visit John. But then... In early summer of 1994, he showed up at their house in the middle of the night. And just like Beverly, they were never heard from again. Mm-hmm. And also like Beverly, uh, the disability checks yeah. went to the P.O. box in Olathe, Kansas. Mm-hmm. So when John wasn't hitting up that P.O. box in Olathe, he was reading the Kansas City alternative newspaper, The Pitch, mm-hmm. which is a good... They still make The Pitch, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's, yeah. I mean, it's a good, repu- good reputation. Good publication. Yes. Uh, reputation. Reputable publication. Thank you. Thank you. That makes me sound less like an idiot. Like, I really did want to use that word. So, he was a big fan of the personals column. Oh, the back page? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you seen it before, have you? In early September of 1995, he saw an ad that caught his eye. A successful woman wanted, quote, a masterful, successful, entrepreneurial SWM. Mm-hmm. And as a big fan of the back page. Sing white male. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> know what that's about. John's like, that's me. Yeah. So he calls her. And the woman is actually successful. Is masterful code? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, right? Yeah. 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 For, she wants a BDSM. She wants a dom. Yeah, she wants those pliers. (laughs) (laughs) Toolbox is another code. (laughs) Just kidding. Don't actually do that. (laughs) I don't want people writing in. Oh, gosh. I put in my Craigslist ad that I wanted a real toolbox. No, so she's actually super successful. Hey, she's got some guy that wants to toss hot dogs. <laughs> We're so confused. So do you know the story of this woman? No, I don't think okay. so. I think it's super interesting. So she lives in Topeka, Kansas. And for this article, she went by Chloe Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. For privacy reasons, yeah. obviously. Basically, she said she was dominant in all aspects of her life and wanted to be submissive in yeah. bed. So... Chloe was pretty cautious about John. They talked a lot on the phone before they met. Mm-hmm. And she asked for documents to prove that he was who he said he was. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he did that. He sent her all kinds of stupid shit, like the Man of the Year Award. Oh, yes. The copy of Farm Journal that Excellent. featured him on the cover. And even a newspaper article from when he was a 13-year-old Eagle Scout meeting Queen Elizabeth. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. All Eagle Scouts are creeps. <laughs> I only say that because I know that Zach is one. You said that the last time I mentioned an Eagle Scout. (laughs) (laughs) Is this a running joke that I just think is always hilarious? No. Uh, BTK was an Eagle Scout. Uh, You know, the serial killer in the making that we also did. I think he was also an Eagle Scout. Oh, maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Maybe it wasn't BTK. BTK was a uh, Boy Scout leader. He might not have been an Eagle Scout. Serial killer in the making was an Eagle Scout. That's where that reference mm-hmm. came mm-hmm. from. Very good. Thank you for keeping me on my toes. Um, accuracy is very important here. <laughs> so, Chloe was like, whoa, this guy's the real deal. Which I completely understand. I mean, if somebody sent me that, yeah. I, why, would you, why would you question any of it? 
Um, so she invited him to her house at 2 p.m. on October 25th, 1995. Uh-huh. I wrote, she invited him to come to her house. Oh, wait, no. I wrote it right. I read it wrong. <laughs> anyway, they set the date. Yes. He shows up. When he showed up, he was dressed in a very nice navy suit. Uh-huh. And she was wearing exactly what he said he wanted her to wear. A sheer thong, a demi-cup bra, and a sheer robe. I can't imagine that he said demi-cup, demi-cup bra. bra. I mean, do yeah. men really know that much about bras? I wouldn't that they think like, so. I prefer the demi-cup. But maybe a, a BDSM master might. See, I feel like it's more likely that a guy would just be like, a black bra. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so I think that a regular man would probably... Are you saying this guy isn't normal? (laughs) That is exactly what I'm saying. (laughs) Well, let's keep reading and find out together. (laughs) So um, they kissed and he had her sign a slave contract and he tied her up. He slapped her until she cried and then he stopped and told her that he loved her and he untied her. Then he did a bunch of other weird stuff like tying a rope around her boobs Okay, this is this is when mm-hmm. you know they lose me. <laughs> Trying to be non-judgmental here, but he like he tied a rope around one boob until oh god, until it was like bright red. Then he did the other one and like yeah. her quotes in this article, I mean, she was just loving it. But I mean, the way she described it, I was like, "Oh my god, no." Like, <laughs> She was talking about how her nipples turned purple and, like, got, like, three times the size that they should be. And, like, she said her boobs were as red as cherry tomatoes. Oh, my God. Uh, again, different strokes for different folks. <laughs> also, I feel like we should have a video right now because I'm covering my boobs. I know. Like, you're afraid I'm going to come over and tie them up. I don't know. You could lasso me from over there. <laughs> so, um... She was super into it. She yeah. called their first date sensational. Did she spell it like S-I-N? Oh, gross. <laughs> and then she winked. <laughs> um, yeah, man, I don't know. So, <laughs> but here's the weird thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> That's me when I was ready. Trying to be non-judgmental. Yeah, Uh, that that rope stuff with the boobs totally (laughs) normal. We've all been there. We all love it. So before he left, he told her that she'd been stupid to let him do all that stuff to her, and that quote, "I could have killed you." Yeah. Um, but Chloe was kind of like, "Okay, dude." She wasn't worried. Uh huh. Because the whole time, without John's knowledge, she'd had a male friend hiding in the house just to make sure things didn't get too crazy. Wow. Right? I mean. Wow. Yeah. That's nuts. And here's the thing. This friend went downstairs and wrote down John's license plate (gasps) while they were upstairs. She's smart. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Her poor boobs took a beating, though. <laughs> she liked it. I know, oh. I know. That's why, that's why I'm being ridiculous. Like, she enjoyed it. That's all that matters. Why do I care? She didn't ask you to do it. <laughs> Thank God. 
But um, John and Chloe's relationship keeps moving forward. Yeah. You know, they both seem to enjoy what happened. Um, they <laughs> see... <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm really sorry to people who are into BDSM. I'm, you know, like... We're really not judging about it at all. <laughs> I'm not. Kristen's slightly judging. I'm just squeamish is all. <laughs> so they see each other like twice a week, but things seem a little off. Yeah. Chloe had a friend in the state government, and she asked the friend to run John's plates. And, of course, the car came back under John and Nancy's names. Mm-hmm. But he'd said that he was divorced. Mm-hmm. So she's like, mm, I don't know. Mm-hmm. At one point, John was like, let's go on a European vacation together. And she's like, well, okay. Yeah. Here's the thing. I think she had money. Yeah. And so, like, the idea of a European vacation to her wasn't, like, this huge, huge. big thing. Yeah, I know. But, like, some of... I'd be like, yes, let's yes! go! All right! <laughs> How much stationery yeah. should I sign? <laughs> but she was like, mm, I can pay for my own yeah. European vacation. <laughs> oh, well, speaking of stationery. So then he's like, first, sign these blank pieces yeah, of stationery. And give me lists of all your relatives' addresses. And she hopefully was like, fuck no. Exactly. Good. She was like, that's weird. Yeah, I'm not doing I'm that. I'm not going to Europe with you. We're cool. Yeah. Then eventually, I assume through her friend at the state mm-hmm. government, she found out about his record and she broke things off. With uh-huh. him. So now it's 1996. Mm-hmm. John and Nancy moved back to Kansas. By this point, the Internet is a big thing. And John was a big fan. Mm-hmm. He had five computers and he spent tons of times, on, tons of times, <laughs> tons of times, all the times, <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> He spent tons of time on BDSM websites. Uh-huh. His username was Slave, Slave Master. Master. Yes. <laughs> In 1997, John lured Isabel Luica, Luica, Isabel Luica, a freshman at Purdue University, to come live in Kansas. She told her parents that she'd been offered an internship mm-hmm. and gave them an address. But they found out way too late that the address was to a mailboxes, etc. Mm. So Isabel and John appeared to have kind of a normal-ish BDSM relationship yeah. for a while. But then she went missing. Mm-hmm. And when the managers of her apartment went to get it ready for new tenants, they found it memorably clean. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's yep. not good. A few weeks after Isabel disappeared, John met... Suzette Troughton. John met Just Suzette killing these Troughton. last names. They're so good. <laughs> Shut up. You know what's funny? As I was like trying out a few different ways of yeah. saying it, I was like, I'll just, send, I'll just pick the one that sounds the most confident. Yeah. But now that you've said that, I have to leave it all in. <laughs> so she was 27. She collected teapots and loved her two Pekingese dogs. She was also part of the online BDSM sex mm-hmm. scene. And once again, John lured Suzette to Kansas City by offering her a job. Mm-hmm. So she was a home care nurse, I think, in Michigan. Yeah. And he told her that his very wealthy dad needed constant medical care. In reality, his dad was dead. Yeah. But anyway, she flies out for the interview. And he has her picked up in a limo. Mm-hmm. 
And she's pumped. She didn't get to meet John's dad, but this sounded like an amazing job. Like, she was talking to her mom about it. She was, like, really nervous about the interview. Yeah. This is just heartbreaking. Yeah. You know. Why? What happens to her? <laughs> oh, just good stuff. She's fine. <laughs> Don't worry. So it sounded like an amazing job. Yeah. She'd get to travel on their yacht. Oh, yeah. Which... In Kansas. Just pro tip. <laughs> Nobody in Kansas has a yacht. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If their home base is Kansas City, no. No. Not very likely, anyway. If anything, maybe they rent a yacht yeah. when they go to the coast. That's yeah. what I do when I go to the coast. <laughs> <laughs> so she'd earn $60,000 a year. She'd get a car, an apartment, you know. Yeah. Sounded great. John moved her into the guest house suites in Lenexa, Kansas, and said, hey, you're going to be taking off on this trip in two weeks. I've got some stationery that you need to sign. A few days later, Suzette's bill had been paid at the guest house suites, and someone called Animal Control to let them know that two Pekingese dogs oh, were in a kennel no. outside the main office of this rammed, random subdivision in Olathe. You're not going to believe this, but John lived in that subdivision. Yeah, shocking. Mm-hmm. Poor Pekingese dogs. What? They lived. Are you <laughs> kidding me? What about Suzette? You are so weird about dogs. I am so weird about, weird about dogs. They were probably really hot. And the- oh my god. <laughs> So far, the most, if, if you're keeping score at home, so far, the most emotion Brandy has shown this whole episode is over the two dogs. What's our body count right now? These people, they are, nobody is dead yet, Kristen. Oh. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so the dogs were super hungry. They were dirty. They'd been, I'm just kidding. <laughs> No, I think the dogs were fine. Oh, good. <laughs> so Suzette's mom, Carolyn, got suspicious when her daughter all of a sudden stopped calling. That mm-hmm. wasn't like her. It seems like Suzette was pretty con- well connected yeah. with people. She had this friend, Lori. They both called John. Uh-huh. And he told them, oh, Suzette turned down the job offer. Mm. She ran off with some guy named James Turner. Oh, that's very specific. Mm-hmm. Who's James Turner? Is it a real person? <laughs> Probably not. I'm sure there is a sure James Turner. A James Turner, yes. Pretty soon. And by the way, both of them were like, mm, no, no, no not, for sure, no. No way, yeah. Why would she have turned down such an amazing sounding job? Yeah. No. Pretty soon they started getting letters from Suzette. But they were like, no, this does not sound like yeah. her at all. So Suzette contacted the Lenexa police. And unlike the Overland Park police, who apparently had this file of missing women associated with this guy and done nothing with it, Lenexa detective David Brown was like, I don't like this John Robinson guy. Yeah. I'm going to figure out what happened to Suzette. Mm -hmm. Pretty soon he forms a task force to investigate this whole issue. And one of the first things he did uh, was go to Missouri and talk to Stephen Hames. Mm Mm-hmm. Apparently, one of the first things he said to Steve was, you seem to have had this guy pegged from the beginning. Mm-hmm. 
Meanwhile, the dogs were at the groomers and they got little. <laughs> No, so meanwhile, John met another woman online, and this time it was a woman named Janine. And she was also into BDSM and was interested in finding a guy who could be her partner and actually employ her at the same mm-hmm. time. Can't have everything. Like, <laughs> I'm just saying, if somebody's offering you too much. Uh, yeah. Uh, when she moved to Kansas, he put her up in the guest house suites in Lenexa. Mm-hmm. But he was very rough with her during sex, and she didn't like it. So apparently she... No, hold on. Before you make that (laughs) judgmental face. So she liked to be dominated, but she didn't want pain. She... She, Yeah, she wanted to be bossed around, but she didn't want the... Yeah, she didn't want pain. She didn't want the pain. Okay, got it. But of course, he didn't listen to that. He took pictures. She wasn't into that. Yeah. This whole thing was bad. It was the opposite of what she wanted. So she regretted moving to Kansas. She regretted getting involved with him. And she had a really bad feeling about John. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So one day she went to the front desk of the hotel and she asked to see the registration information for the room. Mm Mm-hmm. So she thought she was dealing with James Turner. But that's when she realized that the information for the registration for the room was linked to this guy called John Robinson. Uh Uh-huh. I said called because I'm British now. (laughs) (laughs) So she called the police and immediately Detective David Brown was on the phone and she's like crying really hard telling this story. She starts to share just some of the details of it and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm going to stop you right there. Pack your stuff and get, get the out hell of out there. there. Yeah, get out of that hotel right now. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so I've got goosebumps now. Um, he ended up interviewing her the next day because the main priority right right then was like, whoa, 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 stop crying, stop telling yeah, yeah, me yeah. stuff. Just get the fuck out of there. Get away. So, are we ready for some justice? Yes. So she talked to police and they finally felt like they had enough. Mm hmm. To arrest him. Because she was able to say, you know, what what happened was not consensual. Here's what he did. Blah, 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 blah. Finally, on June 2nd, 2000, nine police cars surrounded the the Robinson home at 36 Monterey in the Santa Barbara Estates neighborhood in Olathe, Kansas. They arrested John for sexual assault. Yeah. They did a full search of his house. They grabbed all five of his computers. And they found a piece of stationery from 1985. It was signed by Lisa Stacy. Then they went to a nearby storage facility where John had a locker. I know. When they opened it up. <laughs> I know, it's so bad. It's so bad. They opened it up. They found links to a ton of missing women. They found... Birth certificates, social security cards, signed stationery, all kinds of stuff, mostly from Isabel and Suzette. This is not the storage facility you're thinking of, but we're getting there. Okay, so the next day, they went to the Robinsons' other property, a 16-acre piece of land about an hour south of Olathe, Kansas. Mm -hmm. There they found two 55-gallon barrels outside a tool shed near the property's mobile home. They pried open the barrels, and inside, each barrel contained a dead female body. Mm -hmm. 
Obviously, the police kept this a secret for as long as they could. They wanted to find as much as they could without any kind of interference, but they did call Stephen Hames. And looking back, he said, it confirmed what I had always believed, but the move from theory to reality was chilling. They immediately set to work trying to identify the bodies, but at the same time, they had work to do in Missouri, too. Yeah. Because he also had a storage locker in Raymore. So they got a warrant for that storage locker. Detectives opened it, and it was full of just all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it smelled horrible. Yeah, They took stuff out for about 40 minutes, and finally they found three barrels. And apparently they were like surrounded by kitty litter. I guess he was trying to mask the smell, but I mean, you just can't. And of course, each of those barrels contained a dead female body. Mm -hmm. Later examiners determined that the women were probably hit by a hammer. They didn't seem to have any defensive wounds, so Mm -hmm. they must've been tied up and then, you know, he hit them with one or two blows. Eventually, they determined that Suzette and Isabel had been in Kansas, and Beverly Bonner, the librarian, and Sheila and her daughter Debbie had all been in Missouri. Mm -hmm. Lisa Stacy's body was never found. Neither were the bodies of Paula Godfrey or Catherine Clampett. Mm -hmm. Now for the trials. So I'm going to be honest with you. I've been talking for a while. (laughs) (laughs) This is a court podcast, but yeah. I'm going to go a little faster than That's usual. Fine. Yeah. Okay. Because there's more than one trial. Yeah. So since he murdered women in Kansas and Missouri, he was actually tried in both states. Yes. Yeah. His 2002 trial in Kansas was the longest criminal trial in Kansas history. Mm-hmm. It lasted one and a half months, and it was awful. The whole story that I just laid out all yeah, came yeah. out about all these women and how he'd lured them in and eventually murdered them. I'm not going to rehash any of that, but I do want to talk about something I found interesting about the trial. John's wife, Nancy, testified and defended him. Wow. Uh, At one point, she appeared to surprise the prosecutor by saying that John had an alibi for when Suzette Troughton was supposed to have been killed. Wow. Nancy claimed that he was babysitting their grandchildren on the morning that Suzette was supposed to have been murdered. Uh-huh. But the prosecutor, Paul Morrison, was like, no, don't think so. He's like, judge, I'd like to redirect. Yeah. So he goes, Nancy, why didn't you mention this alibi during the other two times that you talked to police? Yeah. Or during the preliminary hearing? I just thought of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I'm I struggle with this yeah. just because, I mean, multiple murders, you've got, I mean, maybe you're just trying to cling to hope. I don't know. Um, but she obviously crumbled under those questions. Yeah. She said a bunch of other stuff on the stand. She talked about how she knew that John used aliases, but he always had some reason for it. She also said that she had visited those storage facilities and never noticed anything unusual. She said that she knew her husband had had affairs and that she'd thought about leaving him twice over the course of their marriage. She cried a lot Mm -hmm. on the witness stand. She said she still loved him and that she continues to visit him in jail. I just find that so... I I don't know. 
I feel for her. I I do feel for her. I think he was a con man. Oh, yeah. I mean, by that point, I think they'd been married for like 30-something years. They had four children together. Yeah. That would just be so shocking. Oh, yeah. You you maybe wrap your head around that he's committed all these frauds, but maybe he's conned you into thinking that like, oh, yeah, he conned her just like he conned everybody else. Yeah. Ugh. So the Kansas jury found him guilty in the deaths of Suzette and Isabel, whose bodies were found in Kansas. And they also found him guilty in Lisa's murder, despite the fact that her body has still not been found. He got life in prison for Lisa's murder. He got a 5 to 20 year term for interfering with the parental custody of Lisa's baby, Tiffany. Mm -hmm. He was sentenced to death for the murders of Suzette and Isabel. Because their murders took place at a time when Kansas had reinstated the yeah. death penalty. Yeah. Then, in Missouri, he ple- pled guilty to killing five other women. Beverly, Sheila, her daughter Debbie, whose bodies were all found in Missouri, and Paula and Catherine, whose bodies have still not been yeah. found. So here's why he didn't want a trial in Missouri. I can tell you why. Go ahead. Because Missouri's the second most active death penalty state. Yeah. They for sure would have put him to death. Even if he gets the death penalty in Kansas, it doesn't matter. Kansas hasn't put somebody to death since like 1965 or something like that. It's been a very long time in Kansas. Yeah. Um, He for sure, they would have put him to death in Missouri. Yep. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. So his lawyers were like, you're going to die in Missouri. Yeah. You better make a deal. Yeah. And it seems like... Missouri prosecutors weren't super thrilled about a trial either Mm -hmm. because they felt like they didn't have airtight evidence that he actually committed the murders in In Missouri. Missouri. Yeah. And John never cooperated with the investigators in either state. Mm -hmm. He he never told them, hey, here's where the bodies are. So in exchange for pleading guilty, Missouri agreed to take the death penalty off the table Mm -hmm. and they sentenced him to life in Mm -hmm. prison. In the years since his death sentence, John has appealed the decision. Mm -hmm. And in 2015, the Kansas Supreme Court weighed in. They ruled that the district court did make a few errors in that trial. But bottom line, they upheld the death sentence. (sighs) Yeah. (laughs) I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) No, he's still on death row. Um, They they acknowledged a few things that I think are pretty minor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's he on death row? Is he at El Dorado? I think El Dorado. Yeah. That sounds right. Then, here's another thing, and I didn't find a great source on this, but Mm -hmm. I'm just throwing it out there. I saw somewhere that in 2005, after 41 years of marriage, Nancy finally did divorce John. Mm. I'm throwing it in just because I hope it's true. Yeah. Yeah. One last thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let's talk about Lisa's infant daughter, Tiffany who John adopted to his brother and Mm sister-in-law, Don and Helen Robinson. This, this is so messed up. I mean, all of it is horrible, but this poor girl. So they had raised her as their own, named her Heather. And all of this came out when she was like 15. Holy shit. And it was horrible. Devastating. Yes. I read a little bit of something where she withdrew from school. She was terrified that she'd be taken away from the only parents she'd ever known. Because my understanding is that Don and Helen Robinson are lovely people, and And they they really were good parents. But, you know, Heather did have a dad who... Yeah. I mean, I, I read an article where he said, 
you know, he didn't want to disrupt her life. He wanted a relationship with her, but he didn't want to make this any worse than it already was for her. And then, of course, you know, Lisa... Lisa's mom was also in the picture, I think, and I believe wanted to have mm-hmm. a relationship with her, too. Anyway, so she withdrew from school and was eventually diagnosed with PTSD and mm-hmm. bipolar disorder. And as she got older, she got more and more concerned that her uncle would try to profit off of this story. Yeah. You know, by either writing a book uh-huh. or like some stupid screenplay. So in 2004, when she was 18, she sued John Robinson. Mm-hmm. And in 2007, she won a $5 billion judgment against him. Ugh. That's amazing. Judge Thomas Clark said, This court does not have the authority to silence defendant John E. Robinson Sr., but this court does have the power to enter a judgment that will take away the profiteering agenda of defendant John E. Robinson Sr. Mm Mm-hmm. This makes me wonder for the first time, does one of his poor sons Must be, yeah. Oh, God. What a... Oh, terrible. Yeah. Um, One other thing, and I couldn't find a good source on this, but a few different places listed it. They also said that Heather sued uh, Truman Medical Center Mm -hmm. and the social worker who was involved, which I think fair. Um, And the sources I saw said that they settled out of court court. for a large amount. And I believe she split the amount with her biological grandmother, Uh I believe. Wow. Again, don't have a good source on that, but I hope it's true. Yeah, I do too. Because that's insane. Yeah. What happened to her. Oh, my God. Uh, so that is the story of John Edward Robinson. Wow. That was terrible. It was, you know what? It's a really interesting story. It is a really interesting story. I feel terrible now. <laughs> the serial killer case that I almost did today uh-huh was an Australian serial killer who put bodies in barrels. Oh, my God. How, how fucking crazy would that have been? That would have been terrible. <laughs> that was the worst episode ever. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really glad you didn't do oh that. Oh, my gosh. Plus, how long have we been talking? Can you imagine if you'd done Three a serial killer? Three days. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just wasting away over here. Mm. Oh, my gosh. Holy so what shit. what part of that was new to you? Because I was kind of like, oh god, why am I telling Brandy about serial killers? Okay, so I didn't know the, all the fraud stuff. I didn't know okay, any of his okay. background or any of that. Um, okay. I basically only knew it once the body, the barrels were located. Yeah, and see, it's funny because I felt like I really knew the fraud stuff. Yeah, because you know how I love a con oh yeah, man. you love a con. I think yeah. it's so fascinating. Yeah, man, that was nuts yes yes that was not your thing at all no i'm sorry that you had to do that <laughs> Kristen. you know it's my mom's fault because she be texted done. me it had, it had to, to be, be done, done. <laughs> if sherry pitts tells you to do something you really don't have a choice i remember getting into that fight with her when i was little oh <laughs> i remember she said to me could you please set the table for dinner yeah and I said no, because she had phrased it like a question. Yeah. And then the politeness went away. <laughs> I got the lecture of, um, I'm being polite, but that doesn't mean you get to say yeah. no. <laughs> Which is very surprising to me. I may have phrased me. it as a question. Yeah, but you... It was not a question. Make no mistake, <laughs> nine-year-old. <laughs> 
Uh, by the way, I noticed that uh, your dad liked our Facebook page today. I know, finally. I guess he was holding out. Deciding, he was just making sure. Wouldn't that be hilarious if he was he, like, I'm going to listen to quite a few yeah. episodes. Well, yeah, he just told me yesterday that he was listening to, I think, episode 18. So he gave oh. us an 18-episode shot before he was going to like us. <laughs> I respect that. I feel like we really earned his respect there. That's right. <laughs> no, it has been awesome though to like you know so many people have rated us. Yeah, on iTunes. we really it's do been appreciate. Amazing. We that. really do. Yeah, we really really appreciate. It. We've had a bunch of people reaching out to us that they've you know been listening and been enjoying the show, and it really means so much to us because. Yes. Like, we legitimately have a great time yes, making these. Like, it's so fun, but it makes it so much better that people enjoy listening to it as well. To give you an idea of how much we enjoy it, I feel like we should share the gifts that we... So, like, when we hit 50 reviews on iTunes, I sent you the gift of Jonah Hill. And what <laughs> what movie is that? Is it? It's not Moneyball. It's, no, it's, um, uh, it's Get Him to the Greek. Right? Uh, no, it's um. Is that get him to the Greek where he? No, I feel yeah. like it's that, no. It's the one with Leonardo DiCaprio. Come that's on. Moneyball. No, no, that's, not Moneyball. that's, that's Brad Pitt. A... You're thinking Brad Pitt. Um, no. That, that, oh come on! Oh, this is killing me. It's the one Wolf of Wall Street. That's not him in Wolf of Wall yes, Street. Yes, it he has is. Fucking crazy ass teeth in Wolf of Wall Street. It's get him to the Greek. I promise you. Do you want to come at me on movies, Kristen? On this one, yes. No, it's. I swear to you, it's not. If we're talking about this one. Yeah, we're talking about that one. Yeah. <laughs> it's get him to the Greek. I just want to remind you that we're on a podcast right now. <laughs> no one can see the okay, hand gestures. It's the, you guys have all seen the gif. It's Jonah Hill and he's like excited, like his hands are shaking by his face. He's got this big smile on his face. It's if, get him. I mean, I'll fucking look it up right man, now. If I'm wrong, I'm going to be so pissed. Jonah Hill, get him to the Greek gif. Oh, damn it. Oh, weird. (laughs) (laughs) What you didn't see was that Brandy actually typed in Jonah Hill, Wolf of Wall Street. (laughs) Okay, anyway, so I'm wrong. And then Brandy sent back the gif of Melissa McCarthy in Bridesmaids doing her little dance. Dance, yes. (laughs) So... If, if gifts mean anything to you, yeah. we're very excited and we're having a lot of fun. Yeah, it's a blast. And thank you for listening. And if if you really do enjoy it, like, the, and you've already given us a rating and review, just tell your friends about us. Like, seriously, that's the like the best way for you know us to gain listeners. It's just word of mouth. So, it you know, rent a plane, do some sky riding, send up some flares that spell out. <laughs> They say like USA or whatever, right? So LGTC, that couldn't be that hard. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And people would be LGTC. Hmm. That must be a podcast. I'll go to my phone. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing could go wrong in this place. Look, all we all we're asking is that you take out a billboard. A billboard, a full page ad in a uh, men's magazine. Or the next time someone has pliers on your nipples, just shout out, let's go to court. That's bound to get the word out. No, but really find us on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. We have a website, lgtcpodcast.com. You can send us a love note over at our email account, which is 
lgtcpodcast at gmail.com. And we're always in chat rooms, and our usernames are <laughs> Slave Master <laughs> One and Two. <laughs> I don't know why I have to be two. <laughs> and then join us next week when we'll be experts on two whole new topics. Podcast adjourned. And now for a note about our process. I read a bunch of stuff, then regurgitate it all back up in my very limited vocabulary. And I copy and paste from the best sources on the web, and sometimes Wikipedia. So we owe a huge thank you to the real experts. For this episode, I got my info from David McClintock's Vanity Fair article, Serial Killer J.R. Robinson's Sinister Alter Ego, as well as sources like CNN, the Kansas City Star, the Associated Press, and Wikipedia. And I got my info from iowacoldcases.org, the Tama News Herald, the Toledo Chronicle, the Des Moines Register, and the Gazette. It's pronounced Des Moines. <laughs> For a full list of our sources, visit lgtcpodcast.com. Any errors are, of course, ours, but please don't take our word for it. Go read their stuff. <laughs>